Okay, so let's quickly finish Joshua, and then uh, we've got Judges and, and Ruth to get through. Okay, so Joshua then records the, um, the conquest of the land. And uh, then we have verse, a verse that says, you know, none of God's promises failed. And so it sounds very positive, like, you know, they conquered all the land, and they got rid of all the, the baddies, and it's all great. But when you read carefully, you see that it's not quite like that. And then when you come to the book of Judges, then you see, no, there's actually a lot of problems. Does that mean God's promises failed? No. Uh, This, again, is a picture of sanctification. So, sanctification is the process of growing in holiness, becoming more like the Lord Jesus Christ. Sanctification is progressive. Justification is once-off. It happens once. You can only be saved once, truly saved. It's not every time you put up your hand, you're saved again. Uh, You're saved once. It's a unique event. Once-off, you belong to God. You're His child forever. Nothing can separate you. But sanctification is progressive, continuous. um, And it's God who gives us victory, but He calls us then to, to walk in that victory, doesn't He? Sin shall not have dominion over you. Um, So now we are called to make every effort, Peter says, to add, etc., etc., to to fight sin, to do all of these things. But it's it's not your salvation. So here God has promised the land to them. He also promised in Exodus that he would do it gradually because he says if if we chase the people out quickly, then wild beasts will come in. I don't know if you've seen that with, with COVID. It's quite interesting. You know, when people stopped going out... All the animals started coming back in. Okay, um, we live on a on a near a felt, and uh, we even had a Nile monitor. You know those massive lizards <laughs> coming uh, to the land. We had ducks and fish and rats and all sorts of things. So that's the idea. You know, if all the people suddenly go, it's going to decay, and, and wild animals are going to come in. So God already said, "I'm going to do it slowly." Um, but his promises were secure, and God is faithful. Now the, the Jews had to walk in that victory and trust God and continue to, to pull out the land. Okay, and so that brings us to the book of Judges. So Joshua ends by, let me just say, he, he, has a, he gives a speech. He's quite concerned about them. Um, he asks them if they're going to... First of all, he says... Verse 15 of chapter 24, and if it is, um, verse 14, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. So he says you need to serve the Lord. Put away those gods. Okay. Remember when they came out, um, Aaron built golden calves. Okay. They worshipped calves in, cows in Egypt. So they bring, they're bringing that in. Like we all do, we bring baggage in from the world and our idols in from the, the world. But we need to get rid of that. Um, and then he says, verse 15, And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods... Now this is interesting. This verse is often used by people to say, See, we can choose who we will serve. But if you read it carefully, he's not saying, you know, either choose the Lord or choose these false gods, he's saying, 
Choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. He's saying, okay, you know, choose which false gods you're going to serve then. <laughs> the gods in Egypt or the Amorites gods? Okay. So really, if you want free will, we are free to, you know, to choose which demons we worship. That's what <laughs> we're free to choose. A dog is free to be a dog. A sinner is free to be a sinner. Uh, God has to change my nature so that I will love Him. The natural man cannot please God. Not may not, cannot. It's the word of ability. Naturally, I cannot please God. There is none that seek after Him. None that seek after righteousness. And so when the Lord says, if you seek, you'll find, how does that fit in with what Romans says? There's none that's... Well, if He changes your heart... You have new desires and you now start to seek after him. But naturally you, will, you and I will never seek after him. So he's saying that. Then the people respond, far be it from us. No ways. We're not going to serve those false gods. We are going to serve God. Then Joshua says to him in verse 19, You are not able to serve the Lord. For he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will, for not, he will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. Okay, that's quite a damper <laughs> he puts on it. I think what he's trying to do here is, I think the people are cocky. Instead of saying, we're weak. We need God's grace to do this. They're like, no ways, we're going to serve God. We got this. And he says, no, you don't. And then they still say, no, we, we're going to do it. Okay. And he says, okay, you're witnesses to it. Um, Verse 31, it says, Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known all the work that the Lord did for Israel. When we come to the book of Judges, so now they're in the promised land. Um, and uh, the book of Judges records this period when they're in the promised land until there's a monarch. The last judge is Samuel. Saul is the first king. And so God uses judges during this time. And we mustn't think of judges so much as, as someone with a gavel. You know, uh, they're more uh, deliverers, saviors. Okay? They do sit in judgment and decide things, but they're warriors who the Lord raises up to, to, to deliver the people. Okay? So... Um, uh, but I want you to see this progression, what happens after Joshua passes away. Um, from verse 27 of verse 1. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shean and its villages or Tanakh, etc., etc. For the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. And Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Giza, so the Canaanites lived in Giza among them. Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants. Uh, Asher did not drive out the inhabitants. Verse 32, so the Asherites lived among the Canaanites. Okay. And then, verse 34, the Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country. So there's this Uh, first, you have the Canaanites living amongst the Jews. 
then you have the Jews living amongst the Canaanites, and then you have the Canaanites or the Amorites driving out the Jews. Okay? You see, it's, it's a downward progression. They were supposed to be, supposed to be the other way around. Um, and uh, elsewhere in Scripture it says because they had uh, you know, steel chariots, iron chariots. Now, does that sound a bit strange to you? I mean, what does the Bible teach over and over again about, about warfare for God's people? What does God always say? I'll fight for you. Yeah, I'll fight for you. I mean, it's constantly, it's like, don't worry about their chariots, don't worry about their horses, don't worry, trust me. So when it says they didn't fight because they were afraid of the chariots, what is, it, what, what is the narrator telling us? They're not, yeah, they're, they're not trusting God. So the, the issue isn't chariots. God has promised them the land. Go and fight. Trust me, I'll give you victory. So you can apply it to us today with sanctification. Besetting sins. Has God promised you victory over those besetting sins? Yeah. Sin shall not have dominion over you. We're not talking, I'm not talking about perfectionism or something like that. Uh, but sometimes we start to think, I'll never get victory over this sin. Just wasting my time. We start to retreat, don't we? We've, it's like iron chariots. We just, we just give up. It's just, oh, it's just the way I am. I'm just an angry person, or I'm just a lustful person, or I'm just a, an arrogant person, or whatever it is. It's just the way I am. And that's not right. It's, God has promised, no, there's victory. Walk in the Spirit, fight, I'll give you victory, okay? And so we stop trusting God. Um, Okay, so it's a very sad condition. Uh, verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 10 says, And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. They died. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. So back at the end of Joshua, it says, Joshua and that generation knew the Lord. And then the elders, the next generation knew the Lord. And then, Judges tells us, the generation grew up that did not know the Lord. And uh, I think sociologists and people who study these things often talk about the sort of three generations. Things are lost by the third generation. And, and it's often, unfortunately, true with the gospel. And D.A. Carson says, um, you see, Joshua experienced this deliverance of God. And these people experienced conquering the land. These people did not. So uh, the application for us is uh, often you get, you know, people are converted <clears throat> and then they, they, they're very uh, evangelistic. <clears throat> they, they share the gospel with others. Okay. Um, and then that generation is converted. But then what happens is that next generation starts to assume the gospel. Okay. So they, they, instead of preaching the gospel, they start preaching other doctrines, which are not wrong, but they now, they just assume the gospel. You know, we all know the gospel. We don't need to talk about that. No, we want to talk about predestination, or we want to talk about eschatology, or we want to talk about evolution, or we want to talk about this. All important things, 
but they're leaving the gospel. And so then you see this over and over again. Uh, children growing up in Christian homes, when they get to varsity, what do they do? Yeah, they leave the faith. Uh, why? Because they, never, they were never really taught the gospel. They were taught how to be nice people. How to go to church. How to dress modestly. How not to swear. Uh, whatever it is. But they weren't taught the gospel. Okay? That's the good news. So, challenge to, to you, especially younger people. Don't assume the gospel. Never ever assume the gospel. Keep preaching the gospel. Um, and make sure the thing that gets you most excited is the gospel, because everyone, people will pick that up. If you just get excited about Reformed theology, or you just get excited about your soccer club, okay? um, and if you support Man United, that's amazing. Okay? That's just <laughs> good for you. <laughs> no, I can say that. Kaya will give me back next week, I'm sure. But, uh, uh, no, but you know what I'm saying? You, it's a good question. Ask people that know you well, or your children, or your parents, or friends. Just say, what, what do you think is the most important thing to me? It can be quite revealing. Hey? What do you think people would say? No, your, your studies, definitely your studies. That's what you love the most. Or this TV program, or your music. You love your music the most. You know, that's fashion. That's what you really love. That's not good, eh? Hey? Or would people say, no, you, you love the Lord the most. It's the gospel. So, don't, because this generation now, they've, they're gone. They don't know the Lord. They, 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 may, they maybe know the, the traditions and some feasts and festivals and external things. They don't know the gospel. So that's the most important thing. We're not here to produce good citizens, nice people that go to hell. People who are saved, who love Jesus. And the only message that will save is the gospel. Okay, so this is just an application, but I think critical application. Okay, so uh, the book of Judges is not a... It's, it's chaotic, it's a mess, it's ugly. Um, but it follows a cycle, okay? Uh, a cycle of sin... Subjugation. God raises up enemies. You'll see that. The Moabites, the Philistines, the Amorites, Malachites, whatever. Um, supplication. And then salvation. He'll raise up a judge. Okay, so they sin, they rebel against God. So God brings in an enemy to oppress them. They subjugate it. They cry out to God, they supplicate Him, they say, please have mercy on us, remember us. He raises up a judge who brings salvation, and then a few years later, they sin again, <laughs> and the cycle continues. Some people use the R and R, R words. They um, rebel. They are There's retribu rebellion, retribution, um, repentance, and then restoration. 
its duration. Thank you. Okay. I don't know if they'd actually repent though. Because repentance means a turning away. Supplicate that. You know, sometimes we do that. We just say, Lord, help me. But we're not actually, we just don't like the problems. <laughs> we're not actually turning from the sin. Uh, we just don't like the situation. But it is this cycle. And what we see here in the book of Judges is very interesting that God, if you go through the Judges, uh, they're pretty, they're, they're people that you wouldn't expect. Uh, God brings deliverance through the weak, the marginalized, the unremarkable. And we don't have time to go through all of them, but you'll find things like um, uh, the one is, is the, the son of a prostitute. So not from a noble family or an honorable background. Uh, the one is left-handed, okay? um, which, which uh, in, in many, I mean, my parents would, would tell me in, in that, that era, in that culture, if you were left-handed, the parents would, would hit you on your left hand if you used it okay? uh, you, you, to get you to use your right hand. Okay? And so even at this time, it was not a... It was a sort of a weird, shameful thing, unexpected thing. Um, the Lord uses Deborah, a woman, okay, to bring deliverance and jail. So, again, in that culture, uh, not expected. Samson is a mess, isn't he? He's a nightmare. Okay? Um, but what we're seeing is things are not good. Okay? Joshua seemed to, be, seemed to be, if you had a superficial reading, like things are going well. God's promises, it's going well. Then we get to judges and we're like, whoa, this is a mess. They're not doing what they're supposed to do. But God raises up deliverers. And these judges are types of Christ because Christ comes in weakness, doesn't he? He's not wealthy. Uh, he's not, he's, he's, you know, born into a stable. Uh, he's He's, he's a refugee, he has to flee to Egypt, then he comes back, uh, he's, he's a, um, he works with his hands, uh, I don't believe he was a carpenter, I believe he was a stonemason, um, you can ask me that afterwards. Uh, he's a stonemason, so, but he, whether you believe he was a carpenter or whatever, he worked with physical work, manual labor, wasn't in an office job in the corporate world or in Rome somewhere. Uh, he wasn't a big shot. He was, he was a nobody in a, in a little village somewhere. Um, and of course, he, he conquers in weakness, doesn't he? Through death. Okay. And so what we see with these judges is God uses the weak, which is exa exactly what 1 Corinthians says. Hey, if you want to know why God saved you, not many mighty, not many noble. God has chosen the weak things of the world, the foolish things, to confound the wise. Okay? So, sorry to burst your bubble. <laughs> God didn't choose you because you're so amazing. He, um, and it's wonderful that he does that. Isn't that right? That he, he comes to those who, who don't have it all together so that he gets the glory and we get the joy of being saved. Okay, so... Um, I just want to, we don't have time to go through all the judges, I just want to point out a few things. The first one is Deborah and Barak. So remember, Deborah is a, she's known as a prophetess, but she's, 
she, she judges as well. People come to her for advice. And she says to Barak, you know, Barak, we need to deal with this guy. Go and fight him. And he says, no, no, no. She says, okay, so you're not going to be a man. Then a, then a woman is going to get the glory in this battle. Okay. He didn't step up. It's a reminder of Genesis chapter 3. Adam didn't step up, remember? Eve takes the fruit and she passes it to him. He's right there. He's just watching her, seeing what happens. Okay. He wasn't somewhere else playing golf. And then came back. <laughs> he was right there. Uh, but it's not Deborah who gets the glory. It's Jael. Remember Sisera, the judge, the, 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 the general, runs away. And then she, she says, come hide here. Gives him some milk. He goes to sleep. And then she takes a tent peg. Remember that? She smashes it through his skull. One blow to the ground. Okay. She crushes his head. What does that remind you of? Genesis 3, hey? The whole, all the way along, we're looking for serpent crusher, okay? And some, and uh, so we see here, Jael crushes the head of the serpent. Um, in, in fact, that language is used in the poetic version, the poem in chapter 5, um, verse 24, Most blessed of women be Jael, the wife of Haber, the Kenite, of tent-dwelling woman, most blessed. He asked water, and she gave him milk. She brought him curds in a noble's bowl. She sent her hand to the tent peg, and her right hand to the workman's mallet. She struck Sisera, she crushed his head, she shattered and pierced his temple. Okay. And uh, so this, again, this picture of, of um, remember the seed of the woman, seed of the serpent? There are only two, two types of people on the planet, children of God and children of Satan. Okay. Um, Jesus said to the Jews, John 8, you're of your father, the devil. Okay. And uh, that just means in the character of the devil. And, or else you're of your heavenly father and are being changed more and more into his image. And so, a wonderful picture of Christ here. Christ will crush the, the serpent. Um, then we come to Gideon. Gideon is sort of the pivotal, the central point of the book of Judges, and he occupies a lot of space. And remember, he's very humble, and God calls him, and, and um, uh, he, he manages to, to win a great victory. But he's also the start of something really bad. Because of his great victories in chapter 8, verse 22, then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Okay, so basically they're saying, look, we want you to be king. Um, he responds in verse 23, Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you, the Lord will rule over you. It sounds really good, doesn't it? Fantastic response. But then you keep reading, and uh, verse 30 says, Now Gideon had 70 sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives. So how does he live? He lives like a king. Okay. And his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, and he called his name Abimelech. Okay. Anyone know what Abimelech means? So it wasn't the, the concubine who named the child, it was him. So if you see A-B in Hebrew, Av, 
about Abraham. What does Abraham's name mean? What does Abba mean? Father. We see of, A-B, means father. Melech is, means king. Mean, his name means my father the king. Okay. So he names his son Abimelech, meaning my father the king. Okay. Um, and I'm sure you noticed in Genesis there were Abimelechs. And, so it was a common ancient name if you were actually a king. So he actually lives like a king. Uh, and then uh, he creates a lot of problems with his son. And um, uh, his son does some bad things. And then he is killed in verse 53 of chapter 10. And a certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. Okay, so there we see it again. Another skull is crushed. Okay? Uh, this, the, the reminders of, of the, the Genesis 3. Um, then we come to Samson, and Samson's very interesting because he's often, you know, held up as, you know, a great hero. And Sunday school, it's a, it's a great Sunday school lesson, but of course it's heavily censored. Okay, um, because if you, you really were to teach the whole story of Samson to children, it's not a really good role model, is he? At all, he's he's a Nazarite from his birth. He's told. His parents are told, and the Nazarite had to take uh, three vows. What were the three vows? You weren't allowed to cut your hair. You weren't allowed to drink alcohol. That's right, not allowed to touch anything dead. Okay. Samson does all of them. Okay. <laughs> Remember, he kills a lion, and then... He goes back, goes past, and there's honey inside the carcass. What does he do? He takes the honey. And then it says he doesn't tell his parents. And he makes a riddle and all of these things. Uh, he, uh, he cuts his hair. Uh, before that, so we're not explicitly told he drank alcohol, but we are told when he gets married to Delilah that he has a celebration and feast. And feast in Hebrew means um, drinking of wine. It's literally what it means, banquet. Okay, um, it, it's to 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 drink wine. Okay, um, and then we're told that he goes to the Valley of Sorek, where he meets Delilah. Sorek means grape, the Valley of Grapes, and Delilah. Her name means something like a little cup. So, I think even in the the way the narrator puts it, it's like he goes to the Valley of Grapes to get a little cup. Uh, and so I think we can imply that he, he also drinks alcohol as well. Uh, he certainly, certainly does other things as well. He, he's sexually immoral. Um, and then, you know, he, 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 he tells Delilah his strength is in his hair. But he wasn't an idiot. I mean, he, he must have known every time he tells her something, the Philistines come and try some new trick. So he, he knew she was out to get him. But it, so it seems that he's lost, he starts, he's, he's touched dead things, nothing happened to him. He's, he's been sexually immoral, nothing happened to him. He's probably drunk wine, nothing's happened to him. So he started to think, you know, it's actually me. I'm okay. And so he says, no, cut my hair. Probably thinking, even if they cut his hair, it's not going to change anything. In fact, the King James says, when he got up after they cut his hair, 
he wist not that the spirit had departed from him. He didn't even realize. Okay, that's how carnal and cold he had become. So I think yeah, the warning to us is the same thing. Sometimes we think, well, I got away with this sin and I wasn't struck with lightning. Nothing bad happened to me. And so then we see how far we can go and see how far we can go. Um, and that's God's grace to us. It's not, a, it's not that he's condoning your sin. He's just being kind to you. And if you continue, though, he will pull out the big guns. Okay, uh, And that's what happened to Samson. Hey? And he gets taken. And what do they do to him? They gouge his eyes out. What do you think that symbolizes? It's a physical thing, but remember the, the power of the Holy Spirit doesn't record things for nothing. Spiritual blindness, you know, he's become spiritually blind. But he begins to get his sight back. And what he does, remember the story that he pushes down the pillars that held up this massive temple to their false god. And the Bible says he killed more in his death than in his life. Okay. Who does that remind us of? Who? Christ, yeah. I mean, because he loses his own life in doing it, isn't that right? Samson loses his life in judging and destroying evil and the enemies of God. And so it's a picture of Christ. So Samson is a picture of Christ. So he has faith at the end. Um, and so an encouragement to us, not a license to sin, but encouragement that God saves Samson's and um, David's. And, and so... No matter what we've done, there is forgiveness and grace and God can still use us in his, in his kingdom. And then the last few chapters of Judges are horrific. Okay? Um, they are very disturbing. And uh, what, what we don't have time to go into them in, in great detail, but simply to say that what we see is that God's people are, are behaving like Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay. If you haven't read it, do you remember the account? There's a woman who's raped to death. Her body is then cut into 12 pieces, and the pieces are sent to the 12 tribes. And then the one tribe gets upset. Well, no, the, all the tribes get upset, and it's the tribe of Benjamin. They come and attack the tribe of Benjamin. Um, and... Um, they then, after the, they've defeated them, they feel sorry for their brothers, and so they say, these guys don't have wives anymore, so we're going to go and steal women from another tribe to find wives for them. It's a total nightmare. The priests are, are a disaster. Uh, and it's simply to say, the God's people who had been delivered out of Egypt, God had saved them and given them so many blessings, are now behaving worse than pagans. Okay? And that happens, unfortunately. Um, David and Bathsheba. Bathsheba was married, what was her husband's name? Uriah. Uriah the? Hittite. Hittite. He wasn't born a Jew, but he had converted and submitted to David and trusted that this place will be better for me. And the great King David made Jerusalem uh, 
worse than pagan cities. He took the man's wife, had him murdered. Okay, um, And so here we're seeing that these God's people are behaving worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay. And so a terrible, terrible indictment. We have this phrase that everyone did. In, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Um, so people say, well, this is you know, pointing an argument for the monarchy. You know. So it could be, it could be like there's no king, so we need a king. My Old Testament lecturers said, look, I mean, this would have been written later after all of the events had happened. So he actually interpreted di differently because, you know, when you've got Samuel and later on there's terrible kings. Uh, and so there may well have been people saying it, it, was, it was better when we didn't have kings. And so you can go and read the book of Judges and see, actually, it wasn't better when we didn't have kings. And so I think it's an important point here. You see that the issue isn't, you know, what political system is in place, a monarchy, benevolent dictatorship, democracy, some form of republicanism, whatever it is. The issue isn't the form of government. The issue is the human heart. Okay. The human heart is the issue. That we're evil, and if we're not submitting to God, it doesn't matter who's in charge or what's going on, we will, we will do what's right in our, in our own eyes. Okay? So, uh, that's, that's, I think, uh, one of the messages, but it's showing us this downfall. We come to the, the book of Ruth, and it's a little ray of light when we look at Boaz. Boaz is an honorable man. Remember, he's living during the time of the judges. But Boaz is an honorable man. We introduced to this family. Uh, there's a famine in the land and a man of Bethlehem. Bethlehem means house of, of bread. Okay. Beth, if you see Beth anywhere, it means house. Bethel is the house of God. Bethlehem, uh, Bethlehem, house of bread. Okay. So the irony, there's famine in the house, and they're in the house of bread. Uh, but they moved to Moab. They decide to leave the promised land to get help. And then they marry uh, Moabites and they die. And so it really is a picture of uh, judgment. They don't trust God in the promised land and then they marry Moabites. Um, and so remember, Scripture is not against, people often read it, you know, cross-cultural or, you know, um, Multiracial marriages, the Bible's against that. The Bible's not against that at all. The, the Bible is against marrying unbelievers. Okay. So if someone was willing to, because Ruth is a Moabite and she marries Boaz, okay, and there's nothing wrong with that because she says, Your God will be my God. She converts. Okay. So that's the issue. That's what scripture is. All the way through, uh, Moses was married to. Yeah, Zipporah. Yeah. Um, uh, Caleb was a, a Kenite. Okay. And uh, he wasn't a Jew. So, uh, you know, God saves Jews and Gentiles as long as they believe in him. That's the critical thing. And that's what scripture teaches. Marry, Paul says, marry in the Lord. That's the issue. Okay. Marry in the Lord. Marry a believer. As best you can tell. Okay. 
So, um, but here it, it seems they were not converted, they hadn't converted yet. It's only later she says, your God will be my God. Okay? And there's a judgment upon these, these men. So it's a very sad story. And they come back, uh, but really the reason for the book of Ruth is that David, it's an apologetic for David being king. Because in Deuteronomy 23, verse 3, it says, No Moabite will, will be accepted, even to the tenth generation, okay, amongst the people of God. There's a judgment on the, the Moabites. So you can imagine, especially Saul's descendants, saying, Hey, how can David be king? His, whatever, great-great-great-grandmother is a Moabite. He shouldn't be allowed in. And so this story is an, is an argument, a defense of why, even though David's great-great-grandmother is a Moabite, it's okay. And so we also see God's grace in, in this account. And so she comes, um, uh, it's, a, it's a, a wonderful story. Several words are repeated regularly. The one is chesed, God's steadfast love. One of my favorite words, Deuteronomy 30, uh, sorry, Exodus 34, when God reveals himself, it means his steadfast love, his loyalty. Okay? Um, God is loyal to you. Okay? Uh, you know, I don't know if... So I enjoy soccer. So, uh, and I've supported Liverpool from the early 80s, okay? When they were winning everything. <laughs> <laughs> and then for 30 years, when they didn't win the league, okay? But I remained faithful. I had friends <laughs> who supported Arsenal through, you know, when the Invincibles and all of that. And then when Arsenal started to fade, suddenly they're Chelsea supporters. Then they're Man City supporters. Okay. They're not loyal. Okay. Loyalty. God is loyal. He's not like that. He's loyalty, steadfast love okay, to his people. Even if you've failed, even if you're going through 30 years of no win, not winning the league, okay, of failing, of sinning. Because remember, he didn't choose you because you were good. It's not, he's not a boss who hired you because you're good at your job and now you're not so good and so you're out of here. He chose you knowing all your He chose you in your sin, knowing everything about you. So he's not going to stop loving you because you sin now. He's loyal, steadfast love. Okay? And so we see this in the, the book of Ruth, in the people and in, of course, God. God is loyal to his people. And then there's this phrase... Uh, verse 12 of chapter 2, The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you to, by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And so, uh, there's again this repetition of wings, this idea of protection. And we, we see that in Scripture. And um, here, a, a Gentile, a Moabite, has come under God's protection, under his wings. But when we come to the gospel, remember Jesus says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered you as a hen gathers her chicks. You know, he wanted to bring them under his wings to protect them, but you would not. Okay? Um, 
And so, you know, wanting to us and the privilege to stay under God's wings. It's a place of protection and shelter. Uh, one commentator said, there is no refuge from God, only refuge in God. Okay? So to be in God. Okay, so Boaz is a wonderful type of Christ. He's a kinsman redeemer. He redeems her. He marries her. Protects her. Remember that, that widows at that time uh, were very vulnerable. Agrarian culture. They didn't have possessions. Um, and yet he takes her and he, he marries her and redeems her. And so that's what Christ does for us as, as the church. But it's also arguing for, for David. And so we've seen Rahab and Ruth, ladies, two ladies who are in the, the gene, genealogy of Jesus Christ, unexpected. Rahab's a prostitute and Ruth is a, a Moabite that God brings these people in. Okay, any questions in closing? Yes. Okay, so there's the um, there's a, there's somebody who's closer relationally, and should then um, step up and and uh, redeem and protect the family, take purchase the land, and then take um, Ruth as wife. To protect Naomi. Okay, so a closer family member. Okay, does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So a close, uh, like in the family tree, the person is closer in relation mm -hmm. to Naomi. And so it would have been their responsibility, because God's law was very kind, it was the most advanced law in terms of caring for orphans and widows. Uh, you even see the gleaning, they were, the poor were allowed to go in and, and take the gleanings and that. So there was someone who was closer to Naomi and then to taking Ruth as wife. But he didn't want to take Ruth. And so then he, he reneged on his responsibility and that allowed Boaz to, to redeem her. Now, you know, what is the symbolism? Who is that nearer redeemer? I don't know. Like in, if, we, if we were to... Um, you know, see how does it like if Boaz is a type of Christ, which I think he is. You know, who is the nearer redeemer that doesn't do do us good? Uh, you know, maybe it's death. I don't know something something that's closer to us. Um, but at least at this time, just in you know, like the Leveret law of marriage. You know, if, if your husband died but the brother was still alive. It was his responsibility to marry you, which sounds really weird and you know, terrifying, especially if you have a horrible 
brother-in-law, but it was actually a form of protection because you were a widow and, and how are you going to survive, especially if you didn't have children to care for you. And so it was actually a form of protection. So there was someone who was closer, but they didn't want to. And so then Boaz steps in. But I, I've tried to figure that out without being sort of just allegorizing. But it's just the, the Jewish or, or the God's law to protect widows. Uh, he was the first one who should have helped, but he doesn't. Um, so, yeah. Okay. Any other questions? Okay, let me pray for us. Father, thank you for our time together. And again, uh, time is too short. We run out, um, and uh, we've missed missed uh, many things. But Lord, I pray that we would have got the big picture. Uh, you were working, and uh, you are a great God. You fulfill all your promises. Help us to be those who walk in those promises, who walk in the Spirit, um, and that we're not like Israel, that we rebel against you and give way to the sins in our lives, the little Canaanites in our lives that turn us away from you and subjugate us and oppress us and destroy us and um, help us to, to put them to death, um, the sins in our lives, to mortify the deeds of the flesh, to know victory. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you do use the weak and the foolish, the things that are not, the outsider, the stranger, um, the sinner, Thank you so much for having mercy upon us. May we rejoice in the gospel. May we proclaim the gospel, not assume it. Keep us safe as we travel now. And we ask all these things in your wonderful name. Amen.